Welcome to the Data Rockstars Coffee Pod with me, Kelly Peters. And me, Regina Lally. So we're back this week again with our third episode to talk about what's happening in the world of data and data protection. Thanks so much to everybody who's listened already and given us feedback. It's great to know that you're uh, enjoying listening to what we've got to say, um, something a little bit different about uh, the way we approach data. So that's been really, really cool to get that feedback from you all. Um, this week, we've had a few questions come through from our listeners uh, to the coffee at dbxuk.com email that we've set up. So we'll be talking a little bit about some of the questions there that have come through on the contact tracing app that's um, currently being discussed and trialled on the Isle of Wight. But first off, we're going to start with uh, Kelly has noticed something quite interesting in Europe that's happened about the role of the data protection officer and wanted to flag that with uh, you, our listeners. More that I wanted to get my nerd on, Regina. <laughs> so the Belgium Data Protection Authority has, has fined a uh, company that they were investigating for a breach of personal data for um, inappropriate um, appointment of a data protection um, officer in that they felt that there was a conflict of interest. Now, to me, this is really interesting because the role of of the appointed data protection officer was that of head of risk, audit and compliance. What was the firm? It was a law firm. Okay. Um, and typically, you would think that actually that makes a lot of sense to have your DPO as, you know, risk audit and compliance because they're quite familiar with the law, they understand frameworks. So you'd think that there'd be quite a lot of good synergy with that. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we've done quite a bit of work with, with law firms. And um, I think typically, whenever I've worked with them, they will place responsibility for data protection with that particular individual so yeah certainly that sounds like something that we've seen and I think what was interesting about this was what they or the data protection authority in Belgium said was that conflict of interest essentially could arise because if the if they're in their role of head of compliance and audit and they're auditing for example an employee for say a fraudulent activity or suspected fraudulent activity they would actually be processing that investigation information so if they're then in the role of DPO, the conflict is they couldn't genuinely sit outside of that and look at it from a worldview and look at, be agnostic. Okay. That's quite interesting. It is interesting because you're like, oh, it would be very rare that I would say that that role would process personal data, but it's still one that I think will raise a number of eyebrows across companies because they might be like, well, that's who we've appointed. Compliance role is doing this. So whilst I think there's the potential it may get challenged, uh, it was a 50,000 euro fine. So it's nothing insignificant. It's how do you remove the conflict of interest? I think it would be what I would want to look at in that. So could there be a deputy that in that situation could step outside, could step in and do that? But what's more interesting is for small companies, how do they manage that other than the, if they absolutely have to appoint a DPO, how can they genuinely manage uh, that conflict of interest? So the reason I like it so much as, a, as an article that I read was that most people think of breaches and fines as security issues and not actually interpretation of roles such as a, um, a DPO. So I just wanted our listeners to be aware that it might be something to look out for that where they have to appoint a DPO or they voluntarily appointed a DPO, make sure they can manage that conflict of interest if there is one. Sure. And do you think there's a true understanding really around when people give individuals the title of DPO that that actually has its role set out in the law and the fact that there can't be this conflict of interest? Do you think that's something that's widely understood? Probably not, to be honest. I mean, it, no, I, th- I think that 
they've been like, oh, we have to appoint one. Logically, they're going to go for IT or head of uh, HR, for example, and they wouldn't have realised that actually the uh, working party for the, the regulation said that, that they're absolutely roles that can't do it. So, I mean, obviously, if, if people have that conflict or they're concerned that of their mis- or their lack of understanding, get in touch with us. We can help, or you know, simply look at the um, information commissioner's website. It sets out what the role um, should be. But I just wanted to hopefully share something that I think would be quite useful and for someone people to be just be mindful of that they can be fined for other things other than a security breach yeah and certainly one of the things that we always sort of try and say to people is you know have a look at the criteria for whether or not you need a data protection officer a formal one and consider it in light of the, the conflict of interest and then if you don't you still need to make sure you've got somebody who's actually responsible for leading data protection in your organization but you maybe just want to call them something other than a data protection officer so there isn't that very distinct set out role they, they carry out the duties but potentially it could be shared among a couple of people but that you have you definitely have a lead within the organization but they maybe are not then restricted by the conflict of interest in the same yeah, yeah. As- would be. I agree with that and I think it, it quite link, nicely links into what you, I know you want to talk about is that, you know, the role of a, a DPO um, would definitely be involved in decisions about new data collection or new systems or apps that are going to be introduced. And, you know, funnily enough, I was just talking about privacy by design. So, you know, I'd be interested to hear what the questions and your views are about uh, the contact tracing um, app. That's not just this country, but around the world going live in terms of being able to tackle coronavirus. Yeah, so I think one of the questions that we had, which was from our our first podcast where we mentioned it briefly, was really just around that, you know, I'm not sure that I want the government to have my data and, you know, what level of information will they get or are they likely to get and can they make me? You know, if I don't want to do this, can anybody make me give my data? Which is an interesting question because I think potentially what we're going to see is there may be a campaign of this is going to help you, this will help release the lockdown, this will help life get back to normal. So there might be quite a bit of pressure on people to download it. But I think it is important to know that you actually do have a choice. It is down to you whether or not you you download the app. So there's no way that they can at the moment make you download this app and give your data but it may well be in the campaigns that you're seen to be a responsible citizen or this is how it's going to um, alleviate you going uh, being stuck at home or um, helping the country get back to normal quicker through the download of the app. So then you've got to make that decision about are you happy with sharing the data that it asks for? Yeah. So there's, the, the app isn't available yet to anywhere in the UK except the Isle of Wight where it's being trialled. And it's quite interesting when I looked into it, the app here is a centralized model. So what that means is, if you see them talking about that, is that the each user, when they download the app, will be given a unique ID, a unique number. But that yeah. number changes every day. And okay. then Bluetooth, what it will do is identify. So if you and I were in contact closer than, than 20 miles, so <laughs> that sort of two meter contact, then what it would do is it would store it in each of our phones, that number. And then if one of us support, reported symptoms, it would then only at that point report the data up to the central database where then the matching would begin to be able to send information out to anybody who'd been in contact with us over a particular period of time, that individual who's got the virus or got symptoms of the virus, to then be able to notify them that either they should be aware or potentially self-isolate if it's confirmed the individual does have coronavirus, the reporting individual. And do you think that people are concerned by the fact that it's going... 
you know, because from, from our previous roles, we've always had the, when we was in the NHS, it's like, oh, it's a big brother kind of view that the government have got our data. What else could they do with that? You know, do you think yeah. that's concern about that? I do. I think there there is real concern. And I think some comments sometimes don't help. So mm-hmm. there's been suggestions that in the future, individuals could give additional information if they wanted to, to help the understanding. So a more specific location. So at the moment, if anybody's interested, the BBC have a good article about kind of what the data is and a preview of it. And what they'll ask for when you sign up is the first part of your postcode so that they know postcode area that you're in so that they can And they are clear about it. They've got little privacy statements that say we're going to use this for understanding how the disease spreads and for it's not going to be used for location tracking. But obviously then, you know, if you have the the choice later on to share more more data or they there's a there's the temptation, I think, and it's always the case, there's the temptation that you've got data available and you think, oh, I could use it for this. There's mission creep or scope creep. And suddenly you're getting information that don't need or that you weren't meant to get from the first place. And this is where something like a data privacy impact assessment is so key because it can help mitigate those risks. And even if you can only do an initial one, that it just helps to, if you can, it helps you to understand where the risks are, where the risks for public trust will be, and then maybe look to alleviate those through your messaging. And I think at the moment, I'm not sure that the message is getting through to the public about how this is likely to be used and and how much of a risk it is to their their rights and freedoms. And I had a look at the ICO website to see what they're saying. Ooh, and what are they saying? So they are very clear about the fact that privacy can't be forgotten, but you have to bear in mind the nature of what we're dealing with in terms of a global pandemic. And so what they've their preference, I would suggest from the statement that Elizabeth Denham, the information commissioner, has made is that a decentralised model is the starting point, but you then have to very carefully justify why you're going for a centralised model. So the decentralised model is what Apple and Google are doing. So working together so that all the data and matching is stored on the individual's personal device and not in a centralised database, which is what the NHS are going for. And potentially that's, you know, I think that helps maybe reassure people a little bit more that it's not going to be matched. All the matching is done on your own device rather than on a central server. But the ICO have been involved in the project with NHS Digital. Okay, that's um, cool. And they are constantly looking to advise them on ensuring that they're thinking about privacy by design and particularly what happens once the need is no longer there. And I think that's where there's a lot of public concern from, again, the commentary that I've seen on Twitter and from privacy experts is, you know, how long will this be kept? How will you decide when it's no longer needed? How do you ensure and reassure us that it's not going to be used for purposes that it was never intended? And certainly privacy experts, the ICO, they're all trying to get that clarity okay. from the government. And I think it's, for me, trust is going to be key with this. There will be some people who maybe are less worried about sharing the data for the overall good, but I think mm-hmm. they've stated very clearly that for it to be effective, 60% of the population would need to download it to effectively wow. reduce the impact of coronavirus. So there's a big... That's trust a big people, yeah. It is. I think the risk is that if they don't get the messaging right and they don't build that trust with the public so that the public feel confident that their data isn't going to be misused then it's not really going to have any effect at all it's interesting that they want that many people 
you know, 60% of the population is a significant number of people. And I, I think the point that you made, which I think absolutely resonates with me, is that that transparency with individuals, as me as a, as someone that's got a mobile phone, and, you know, I, I want to do the good, the best for the people, my family and my friends, but I need to be reassured that how my data is going to be used is going to be appropriate and not misused. Because I imagine that there is the temptation in the future to say, oh, look, look at this amount of information that we have. What if? And it's just that reassurance that that what if would be considered and not just assumed it would be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they do talk about it being anonymized, but the reality of an app like this, which is centrally matched and relying on contact tracing, re-identification of an individual is possible. So therefore it can't be truly anonymous, which is then a challenge that they again have to think about how they manage and reduce that risk to individuals. So I definitely think it's clearly something that we need to keep an eye on because there may be, I imagine, more questions from our listeners as this evolves beyond the um, the pilot stage. So um, remind me again, what's the email address that we're asking our listeners to um, send us questions? So, yep, yeah, really easy to remember. It's coffee at dbxuk.com. And we're happy to get any questions that you have in relation to what we've chatted about today or any other burning data or data protection questions that you have that you'd like us to have a little chin wag over a cuppa or get highly passionate about so anyone that's listened to episode two with a <laughs> enthusiasm uh, about scams so yes yeah, so- there may be more of that coming for sure <laughs> <laughs> so i think um sadly time's running out so we have to uh, wrap this um up as much as we could talk about this forever thank you regina for the really interesting chat today i'm looking forward to our our next one uh, in a, what a week's time yep it'll be same time next week marvelous so uh thank you everybody for coming along do send us some questions at the coffee at dbxuk.com and uh yeah keep safe and sane and we'll uh hopefully have you on board next week <laughs>